If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be there uh, this morning, just going to kind of go through this chapter some. But anybody ever seen this old game show? Here's this, this one. Does this look familiar to any of you? Uh, Melissa likes those old game shows, and, um, and she'll, she'll go through all these. I think Dick Clark hosted this one. I mean, that's going way back, right? And, you know, the winners are excited. They win the money, and then they win the 73 Pinto. And I'm just like, that just is not real compelling to me. Uh, but, but what it does is you kind of, they give you these clues that you guess, and then at the end of it, you get to guess what category is that. Uh, so let me, let me give you just an example, okay? Because I'm, uh, I'm going to give you a real challenging one here in just a second. But let, let's just say that I give you these to guess. Brown bag special, happy hour, two to four, cheese sticks, and conies. What would you say? Sonic. You see, that's the category you guess. Now, now let me, I'll, I'll go ahead and back up to the title slide if you would. And I'm going to give you, a because that's going to give you a clue just a little bit. I, I don't want to be too hard, but listen to these, uh, these clues and tell me what's the common denominator. Um, the gas gauge in your car. Uh, the numbers of your blood pressure or blood sugar. Uh, small children playing in a yard without a fence around it. Uh, a mileage sticker from your last oil change. Walking in a place that you've never been in that looks snaky. Driving on a road nearing a crosswalk. And finally, and I have one of these in every vehicle, the check engine light. All right. So you put all those things together. Can you figure out what a common denominator is? What? Things you've got to keep your eye on. I mean, look at the titles. Things you've got to keep a close watch on all the time. And it's important, right? Because if you don't keep your eye on the gas gauge while you're driving, you will soon be walking, right? I mean, that's kind of what we think. And if you don't watch your blood pressure numbers, you might stroke out. Any number of things could happen, right? And if you're in a snaky area, there could be obviously snakes. And if Caleb's there, he'll get it for you or whatever. But short of that, it could be dangerous. Any of these things could be dangerous. I know this. I just look at this when I'm when Noah will come back for the weekend. I look at his check, his, his oil change, and it's way, 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 way overdue. It's like, you know, I taught you better than this. If you don't watch it, you, your engine will melt, right? And it will just burn up. So all sorts of things. Well, uh, as we're reading 1 Timothy chapter 4, I, you get this idea as you're reading this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's a little stuck. Timothy, who knows the truths and he believes the truths, he embodies the truths, and he's trying to teach them, he's a little stuck in a little apathy or a little bit of indifference. It's, it's like he can't get himself to fully engage in it. He's discouraged. He's lonely. Any number of other reasons. And so Paul is going to try everything he can to say, hey, snap out of it. Snap out of it. And what I want to say to you this morning if you're in this, if you're in this apathetic state, this indifference about your spiritual life, can I say, snap out of it. Snap out of it. We need to be fully engaged. We need to be given diligent attention to this. And so when he does this, there's this verse. Uh, we, we started two or three weeks ago on this one, and we're finishing it up. And here's what the verse says. Watch your life, number one, 
and your doctrine, your teaching, your beliefs closely. That's number two. Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you see the emergency or urgency of this? What happens if you don't? What happens if you're not watching your life closely and you're not watching your teaching closely? What happens if you're not persevering and watching them? What's going to happen? You won't save yourself and you won't save your here. This, guys, is a salvation issue of paying attention to your life and your doctrine, two things. And so the Christian life has two gauges, and here they are. This is what your, your um, uh, dashboard of your life looks like spiritually. The first one is a brain gauge. The second one is a body gauge. The brain gauge is, what am I putting in my brain? What am I believing in? What is the stuff that I'm fueling my life on when it comes to feeding my brain? To get from the Bible to your brain is a long journey, and y'all, there's all sorts of interferences in there that are vying for getting into your tank. You've got to keep a close eye on your brain. What are you believing? How are you evaluating things? When you decide to go to this movie or not go to this movie, what's the evaluation uh, criteria you're using? What's in your brain? When you're deciding who you're going to marry, what's the most important factors? That's what's in your brain. We've talked about this already, keeping a close eye on your brain. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So we're not dealing with it, but can I tell you, it, that's priority over body. It's your brain that tells your body what to do. And if you can monitor your brain, it will tell your body the right thing. But listen, you can't just believe your way to heaven. God's not all about beliefs, and we in Churches of Christ can take a little bit of a criticism for this. We're rational. We're about our beliefs. You do the five acts right, and you believe this just right, and this doctrine is just right, and we're going to believe our way to heaven. Well, that's not true, because he also says, watch your life. Watch your life. Watch what you actually do. Watch your behaviors. That's the second filter or second gauge. Because, guys, there's a big gap between what you believe and what you actually do with your actions. And there's a lot of people who believe right, but it doesn't filter out into their bodies. They believe right, and they think that I've got the, as long as I've been baptized, as long as I do the five acts, as long as I believe the right doctrines the right way, I'm okay. But for some reason, it doesn't make them patient. It doesn't make them loving. It doesn't make them good. It doesn't make them kind. It doesn't control themselves. It doesn't do any. You've got to make both journeys, from the Bible to the brain and from your brain to the body. So Paul says to Timothy, Watch your brain. Watch your body. Keep a close eye on them. Right thinking is critical, but right living is just as critical. And then he starts, listen, this is a weird sermon here because I'm taking this whole chapter and I'm going to ask you nine questions. The first one's going to take up a lot of time and the rest of them we're going to shoot out. But listen, this is the important thing. This is all repetition. I'm not going to be telling you new stuff. I'm, going to be re I'm just going to keep coming at you in different ways because I'm hoping, just like I think Paul was with Timothy, I just want to ask you the right question. I want to give you the right thought that kicks you back into gear when you've grown apathetic and indifferent about your behavior. 
Some of these images won't appeal to you. But I want you to have them anyway. Question number one sounds like this. What are you actually actively training for? Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you put these things before the brothers, if you actually teach them, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained, I want you to get this word, being trained in the words of the faith of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Gymnazo is the word. Gymnazo, train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is of some value. Physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for every way, holding promise for now and for the life to come. Godliness is what you're training. The word is gymnazo. It means go to the gym and sweat. How many people love going to the gym? That's kind of what I thought. Daniel, Buck, somehow that just makes sense. There's nobody who likes this. It's so much, listen, I've watched this. I go to work out anytime on Hilltop, and in comes Jeremy Smith. I'm so proud of that guy. He's there every time just like me. And for a while, Riley was too. For a while. And once, Maddie did too. Once. And she said, that was so boring. And she was the grouchiest person I've ever met. It was 5.30 in the morning, and I steered clear of that. She's such a cute little sweet young lady. No, no, she wasn't, because it was the gym. It's where you, it's where you do things you don't want to do, harder than you want to go, sweat when you don't want to. You'd rather be in front of the TV or better off on your pillow. You'd rather be doing anything else than this, and that's what's called gymnazo training. And Paul says to Timothy, you need to be training. It's about working, isn't it? The Christian life is not something that will naturally or even with the assistance of the Spirit, will do anything miraculously for you. The fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit will produce in you, but y'all, you've got to do something. You've got a role in this. Patience, we know about this. We'll talk about it in just a minute. It's something we all want and we pray for, but listen, this is something you've got to work for. It's about working hard, man. Nobody wants to do this. You don't look, these people who look the way they look don't look that way just accidentally. But it's not just about working hard. It's working hard for a particular goal. You have something in your head. Those people who come week, day in, day out, week in, week out, and they keep going for years, there's something in their head that's driving them to get up in the morning and come, what in the world is that? What can motivate you? I thought for a time it was like good health. Let me tell you, Wiley uh, Stanley's not here, and so I can tell this story. I couldn't if he wasn't. I told it this morning knowing it wasn't going to be recorded. Now it is, and he's probably watching, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness right now. Wiley, I'm sorry for saying this. He, he's so private. He doesn't, well, he goes in for a hip replacement last Monday. I thought I might go up there. He's kind of telling everybody, I don't want anybody up here, okay? But Tuesday, he comes home, and he lives right close to me. So Melissa and I decide, hey, we're just going to go walking. I got a card. I told him, I've got a card. I'm bringing it to you. I think it's a creative card, and I'm going to lay it on your front porch. But I'm not coming in because I know you won't answer the door anyway. I'm just telling you it's on your porch. But as we get near his house, the siren lights are on. 
The fire truck came to his house, and so did the ambulance. He was so excited. It was just one of the neatest things for him. But as they wheeled him out, he was in excruciating pain. I said not a word to him. I was not going to let him know I was watching this. But I was watching it, Wiley. <laughs> anyway, so they wheel him out, put him in that, in that ambulance, and take him on. He, I mean, it was more pain. I've never seen anybody hurt like that. And, and, and so I give it a day because he wouldn't want me to see him. But the, two days later, I'm at, a, at the hospital. He's doing great. Amy's in the hospital bed, and he's walking around. I mean, it's, that's kind of how it's become, right? And I said, well, what's the deal with the hip and being able to have, was it like a, a blood clot? They don't really know, but the doctor told me because of the fitness I was in, the shape I was in, and how I work out all the time and eat right, that it would be a harder recovery than most people. And I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, well, then what the heck is the advantage of it? Why would I want to work out and stay in shape and deny myself chocolate if it's just going to hurt worse when I have my hip surgery? What is the advantage of this? He says, I, I was frustrated because I do, I do this. He, he is one of these guys that inspires you. And so you, I, I move around a little more than I normally would because I think Wally tells me that. I, I do eat just a little better because of one. And why? There's no benefit. I'm going to hurt worse than anybody else on a hip replacement. If I eat like he does, I get off there, I go out in the car, I call Melissa and I say, put the fruit away, baby, we're doing milkshakes tonight because I'm preparing for my hip surgery. What is the point? What is the point if it's not going to benefit you at all? And that was baffling to me. I walk away, but I, I, I go to sports games, maybe volleyball. If you ever go watch Brooklyn and, and volleyball, and we got some great players out there. Great, they got a great coach, great players. I know the strenuous workouts and the practices and all that discipline it takes, but you know there's something driving them. They want to get these skills that are honed and very well, uh, well disciplined, and they want to win volleyball games, and that's what drives them to endure all this stuff. Weightlifters, I don't know why they lift weights, but for some reason they lift weights. And here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. How bad do you really want to be godly? Because that's what the Christian goal is godliness to be like god that's our goal the goal that should drive us is we want to be like god and i don't know many christians who keep that eyes their eyes on that it's not a high goal for most of us for most of us i would say putting sports up there is higher than godliness i'd say for most of us being good at our jobs is higher than godliness for for the christian though we're supposed to want to be like god and that's supposed to drive us to enter training, to be willing to work hard to get it. And, I, and even sometimes this is portrayed in language, but I think sometimes we think it's all about beliefs. As long as you believe and you pray a little and you go to church once in a while, all this stuff will happen. Godliness will happen if you sit in a pew long enough for many enough years and pray once in a while. And I think that's wrong. It's not going to happen that way. You're going to have to work at it. It's going to be some, some kind of training. Listen to this language. I love Paul using this. Epaphras, Colossians 4.12, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He's always, what's the word? He's always wrestling in prayer. 
If you picture prayer as me, just standing here on God, guard, and direct us through this day, and you spend one minute praying like that, that's not what this word conjures up in my head. This word is a picture like this. That's what I think of. This isn't WWE. This is real wrestling. This is where two parties engage in, a, in an incredible battle of strength and stamina, and they're wrestling. Have you ever prayed like that? Does prayer sometimes represent to you a battle of will with your father? There are times, aren't there? You got Myatt sitting back there. Can I tell you, Myatt is here because there was a lot of wrestling in prayer. And I'm not talking about little prayers of God, please help him through. I'm talking about people wrestling, tears, and it exhausted us to pray that through. Can I tell you, spiritual disciplines and maturity and godliness will only come when you wrestle like this. And not just for physical things like this. I want to wrestle because I want to get anger out of my life and I want to wrestle with God and say, God, help me overcome this. Give your spirit the maximum ability to influence me. Give me the ability to yield to him. And I want to wrestle this because I care about this. I care about getting this out of here because that's what God wants of me. And that's what God looks like. And I want to wrestle. And I don't want to just ask politely. I want to wrestle. Let's wrestle. That's training. That's not the only kind. Next screen. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control. Self-control is required for every good physical training regimen for sports. They do it to receive this perishable wreath at the end of the race. We do it to receive this imperishable blessing from God, well done, good and faithful servant. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box boxing. I do not box like one beating the other. I'm not doing this, right? Nobody's there. I can't tell whether I'm making contact or not. I'm not doing this. He says, I don't do that. I discipline my body and keep it under control. It looks like this, y'all. It looks like th that's what the spiritual life is. That's what training is. Now, the question is, when Paul is talking about that, who's he boxing against? Who's he talking about? I'm not beating the air. I'm not swinging at nothing. Who's he swinging at, church? Who's he swinging at? Himself. I'm so frustrated because I'm letting, my body's doing some things I, my spirit doesn't want to. I'm going to box. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fight myself. Is that your spiritual training? If you think the Christian life is a bunch of sissy stuff, where we sit on a pew and read a little Devo and that's it, that doesn't sound like any training I've ever heard of. We got to be more intentional about this and we got to be more engaging in this. It's a boxing match. It's a wrestling. Here's another one. Next screen. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other man a person commits is outside his body, every sin. Uh, but but, but he, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm not going to take in numbers. Everybody, every, uh, more men in this room are battling pornography and sexual immorality than I could ever say. And you're not going to sit there and say, you're overstating the case, and I'm going to tell you, you're ignorant. You have no idea what you're talking about. This generation's plague is not COVID. 
It's lust and pornography. And what this one says is, I want you to flee. I don't want you to go, flee. No, flee. Run like the devil. Run. Look at this. It looks like this. It's not a little jog around the neighborhood. This is run like crazy. That temptation comes up. That website pops up. That desire comes into your head. That conversation starts taking place. That scene in that movie comes up. And you know what it's going to do to your mind and your thoughts for later on. Run! Run like your life depends on it because it does. This is not a little jog. You need to be ready to sprint out of there. Am I overstating the case? Am I exaggerating this? Am I just doing this as an artistic, dramatic portrayal of what could possibly be in the worst case scenario? No, this is spiritual training. This is gymnazo. And here's another one, last one I'm going to say. Solid food is for the mature. Let's get to your eating. For those who have their powers of discernment, train, constant practice, good and evil. Is this good or is this evil? Is this good or is this the best? Do I have enough grasp of Scripture that I can apply it to this thing that's dilemma that's facing me right now? Not just between the good and the bad, but between the good and the best for me. Can I do that? More people can quote the office than can quote Scripture. And when more Christians can get around and talk about the office lines than they could about scriptural truths of God that are for helping you cling to your holiness when everything else is against you, something is amiss. Something's not right. All these graphic images. God says our desire, our goal is to be God-like and we need to be willing to train for it. You know the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is patience. What are you doing today that will move you one step closer to being patient five years from now? If you think that just going to church and that stuff's going to help, you're going to ask yourself, why am I still struggling with the same impatient problem when I'm at 70 than when I was 40? By now, you should have gained some kind of training advantage. I know it's hard, and I know praying for it's one thing. You won't get there overnight. Football players didn't get there overnight, but you have to do something today. You have to be willing to engage in something today if you really aspire to it and not just give lip service to it. Instead of letting those words fly out of your mouth, work on stopping them at your brain. Exercise spiritual muscles to keep your stupid mouth shut. That's gymnazo. That's training. That's putting the goal in your eyes and doing whatever it takes to achieve it. So what are you in training for? Okay, series of questions after this. These are a lot shorter. That first one he spent more time on. What are you striving and toiling for? Look at verse 10 with me real quick. Paul says, I apply this. I'm in training too. He says, for to this end we toil and strive. The word he uses is agonizomai. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Agonizomai. It's agony. I don't like this at all. Paul says the works that we're doing, I don't, this is toil. This is a struggle for me. What is worth the trouble, the agony enough to make you willing to embrace that agony? 
What's worth it? Do you know Melissa bought me a guitar for Christmas several years ago, and I refuse to get rid of it because one of these days I'm going to learn it. I want to be John Denver, but if it takes more than 30 minutes, forget you. Right? I want to be John Denver, but it just takes too long. And Abby has the same thing. She has like this violin for a time, borrowed it, I think. And, and she says, I'm going to learn it. And she, she couldn't learn it in an hour, and so she put it up. When I look at a football player, a basketball player, I'm looking at somebody I know put hours of agony into his skill. Same for an instrument, same for a talent, same for a gift. Whatever it is, whatever you've done that you're good at, you're good at it because you've done it and you've agonized over the elementary things that you have to learn and put into your brain. You want that ability so bad you're willing to agonize to get it. Is anybody in here willing to agonize for self-control? Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Do we have men who are willing to make that covenant? You will not look lustfully at any girl, and so therefore I turn my eyes and I practice moving my neck around. I will do, I, it's agony because, man, it's, it's, it's everywhere you go. In our culture, it, listen, it's summertime's coming. Oh, no, summertime. And then some people say, I'm going to the beach, and I say, I'm so sorry. Take me to the mountains. There are no bikinis in the mountains, at least that I've seen. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. Is it? If you decide I'm going to make a covenant not to look lustfully at a girl, what's that going to demand of you? Is that going to veto some movies? Is that going to mean that there's some places I won't go? And sometimes you can't even control any of that. You just have to turn your eyes, and I'm not going to dwell on this very long. And I'm not overstating the case. Don't tell me I'm overstating the case. Don't come up and tell me, well, that's just, you're just exaggerating. It is not exaggeration. This is agonizomai. And it's what Christians will do who care about becoming like God. Do you know what I think the church's problem is? I don't think we ask enough of our people. I think it's just like, come as you are, whatever, you, just come on out. And I want to tell you, I, I do, we, we'll take you as you are, but I'm going to tell you something. You need to be in training to agonize, oh my. You need to be in agony to get rid of some of these things in our lives that keep us from becoming like God. I call Valley View men and women and young people. I expect you to be in training to look like God. Drop the mic. I'm tired of watering it down. Of just being, well, it's okay, you take your time, and just a hundred years and all. Let's get serious about this. What are you striving? Paul says, I strive for it. What is your hope in? Verse 10, you notice that? You know why he strives? He says, our hope is in the living God. There are some of you that are striving for a scholarship, and that's what causes you to go after volleyball and softball and baseball. Fine. Scholarship's a good, good goal, right? An athletic scholarship but, or, or, or even a championship. But how important is it to you that godliness be there? How important is that to you? Our young people that are striving in school to get a high GPA and be good at sports, are our kids even registering at all the need and the goal to be more like God?
So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I, I never cease, I have, I'm never going to stop praying for you Ephesians. I'm never going to stop praying this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. You know what that means? I want you to know him better, and I want you to become like him. I want you to know him better with the purpose of becoming like him. And I'm never going to stop praying this for you. How serious is it that Paul says, I'm never going to stop praying this for you? And I pray that the highs of your heart, did you know your heart had eyes? You have a spiritual organ in your life where God says, I want it to become so clear that you can see this. This is a spiritual reality that's in the invisible realm. But I want to pray that God opens the eyes of your heart so you can see the hope he's called you to. I want you to see it so clearly. I want you to see where God is, what God is doing in you, where he wants to take you, how he wants to live with you. I want it to be so visible you can see it. And because you can see it, you'll do whatever it takes to get there. The reason why this is hard is because our spiritual eyes take effort. Our physical eyes are full of all sorts of junk all the time. And when your eyes get full of the physical, the spiritual eyes can't see godliness. Oh, that we could see what God wants to do in us. And I, he wants to, the reason he wants you to be godly is not to spoil your fun. The reason he wants you to be godly is that's what you were created for, and you will realize your fullest potential, and you'll have more joy than you can ever imagine. But it's so hard to see that, isn't it? How did Jesus endure the cross, his greatest trial, who for the joy set before him endured the cross he knew what was just on the other side and because of that the agony of the cross was bearable and I want you to know it's going to be agony to become like God but just on the other side when you do you're going to say it was every bit worth it next question what are you setting an example of don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, Timothy. Don't let your age be an excuse for you to say, oh, I don't have to do anything. I can have my prolonged 30-year adolescence. Have you noticed this? We now have a 30-year-long adolescent period before you become an adult. It's ridiculous coming back, living in the mom's basement for when you're 30, right? This is crazy. Paul, Timothy, don't let your youth be an excuse for you not to develop mature. In fact, he says... It's not an excuse. You have an example to be. Go ahead and in your youth, go ahead right now and start being an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, which means conviction and purity. I want you to set an example for the. Now, my question for you is if I ask the people around you the most who knew you the best, what is this person you? What is this person an example to you of? What would they say? If I ask the people who knew you best, what is this person an example to you of? When you are facing something, you think of them, and it makes you think that's an example I want to... Are you an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity? Because that's what God calls us to. What do you set an example of? What are you devoted to? Chapter 4, verse 13. Notice what he says. It's another one. Again, what I'm saying, these questions are all the same question. Let no one despise you for youth, that's to verse 12, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. What are you devoted to? 
What are you devoted to? You engage in it regularly. And everybody, if they dropped in your house, they would see you engaging in this. Will not forsake it. You will not give it up. You won't say, well, I'm just tired of doing this. I'm not going to do this anymore. What is it you're devoted to? And he says, I want you to be devoted, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. I want you to keep front and center that Scripture. Scripture needs to be front and center. May it ever be said at Valley View, no matter how strange people find it, that we always have somebody stand up and just, pre- just, just read the words of God. And when we do, may we have people say, Amen! That's who we are. We're the people of the book. Are we not? Right? Okay. You're supposed to say Amen. Yes! Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Right? What are you devoted to? I, I'll never forget this. This is, this is just a trip down memory lane. This old lady, okay, Rosemary Burcham, go to her house. They had the best garden of anybody in the world. And you go out there and you can get, it is just perfect. There's not a weed in it. They spend hours out there. That's the daytime hours. But the morning hours and the night hours, when you walk into that house, she's gone now. The Bible was open, and it wasn't at the same opening every time, okay? She was, and her kids at the funeral said, we can't remember ever a time walking in there she wasn't studying her scripture. That's called being devoted to. What are you devoted to? What will you not give up? What will you not forsake? It needs to be at least sometimes the Word of God. What do you immerse yourself in? You see verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. What do you immerse yourself in in constant practice? Continual engagement. It's always your business. You're occupied by this all the time. If you're going to be godly and a vibrant Christian, a godlike person, this is not a periodical pursuit. It's not. It's not just a weekly practitionary uh, exercise. This is an immersion. We need to be immersed in water and from that moment on be immersed in the truth. The immersion needs to characterize our entire lives. Verse 15, what can others see you improving in? so that all may see your progress. You see that in verse 15? <laughs> this one, I'll get people say, well, uh, it's a, my Christian life is between me and God. Is it? It's nobody else's business but you and God. But this verse says, so that everyone can see your progress. The idea is, other people who are around you should be able to see you getting better and better and better in your pursuit of godliness, right? Progress means I'm continually improving. Godliness is visible and clear and evident and plain. My spouse, my, my wife, you should be able to ask her about my anger when I was 25 and my anger when I'm 45, and there should be some difference. It discourages me. Now, there are moments, listen, there are moments at 45 when I acted just like I did when I was 25. Those are not pleasant moments. But by and large, when you talk about how you handle this, y'all, 20 more years of Christian experience in the pursuit of godliness should have me a greater handle on anger than when I was 25. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't my kids be able to say, he's kinder to to mom than he was 20 years ago. Shouldn't they not be able to say that, church? Should we not be in the road of that? 
We need report cards to monitor your progress. And finally, one last thing, verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. Persist in it. Keep doing it. You never arrive and you never finish. And we at church, we, we, we're, kind of, we're kind of difficult with this because there's chronic things and there's event things. You do an event, it's over, you move on. But the Christian life is not that. It's not that. It is persistent. It never is done and you're always engaging in it. Some other work to be done. Colossians chapter 1, you who once were alienated, that's all of us, hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. He has made you holy and blameless. But listen to verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, you keep working at it. It's a persistent thing. We live in a time of apathy much like apparently Timothy did. And Paul's looking at that saying, I've got to do everything I can to wake you up. And he he says, look at the two gauges. And that's what you're going to see, the last thing. Look at the two gauges. What are you filling your mind with? And is there some stuff in that brain and your beliefs that are incorrect? Kick them out. Replace them with the truth. Monitor your brain, but also monitor your behaviors, church. Look at your life. Monitor these things. And if you do, you'll save yourself. And you might save your children and your parents and other people around you. And if you don't, you won't. I'm not going to ask anybody what your gauges say. But I am curious, and I hope you've thought about it this morning. If there's anybody who needs to respond this morning, kickstart their spiritual lives again because it's grown dull, or just start them for the first time by giving your life to Christ, whatever it is, look at your gauge and do what you need to do as we stand and as we sing.